The rest of us, I'd like us to turn to John chapter 16 this morning. And the title of the sermon is Your Sorrow Will Turn Into Joy. I'm very excited about this message this morning. And as we dive into it, I want to encourage you, I want you to think about what is that thing, what is that challenge, what is that difficulty, that circumstance, whatever it would be, um, that's got you kind of tied up, that's got you challenged a little bit. And, and I want you to hold on to that. I want you to think about that. There we go. Sorrow turned into joy. And this morning we're going to break down uh, the passage section bit by bit, point by point. John 16, 16 through 24 is the text for today. We're going to be bringing in some other scripture as well as I alluded to. Now, as I started thinking this morning, actually earlier this week, I had three different illustrations that we were going to run with to make you hold on to these concepts. And they just weren't working for me. And I feel like what you're about to see and what you're about to experience, you may just completely tune out. I don't know. I'm taking a gamble on it. We'll see. But as I started thinking about all these different stories I could use to kind of relate to the point, they just seemed deficient. Have you ever gotten to that point where you're trying to talk to somebody and you're trying to get the point across and it just seems like it's, it's up against something. And so I, I started thinking, you know, this idea of sorrow and joy goes way back for us. You know, a lot of kids, they're kind of unfettered with their joy. You know, it, it, but it's interesting as we grow into adulthood, what do we start experiencing? More and more circumstances that add to our sorrow. And so that's when cynicism builds in or skepticism builds in because of disappointment after disappointment. And depending on how we hold on to those things, sometimes they can shape our view and shape how we look at things. So we're going to regress a little bit this morning for our illustration. Are you ready? As I understand it, everybody in this room can identify with somebody in this story. We're going to take you back. To Winnie the Pooh. Did you know that your personality is summed up with one of the characters in the story of Winnie the Pooh? Now, I apologize. If you don't know the story of Winnie the Pooh, somebody who has small kids must have hours of DVDs. You can get caught up with them later. Now, how many of you would say that you're probably like Pooh Bear? No, nobody wants to admit it. This is hilarious. This is funny. I, I, I would see myself a lot like Pooh Bear because Pooh thought with his stomach and not his head. Right? But it always seemed to work out for him. And, and so I kind of identify with Pooh Bear. Uh, how many of you know who this guy is? Oh, yeah. How many of you now, um, we're not going for self-abasement here, but let's say you know somebody. How many of you know somebody that fits this personality type? Right? Right? Now see, okay, I just want to let you know what, what I'm seeing up here. Our young people are fully engaged for the first time in months. Okay? They're like, yeah, Pooh Bear, I can get into this. All right, how many of you know somebody that's like that? Right? How many of you are irritated by that person constantly? You would be this person then. You ready? That would be you. And there's a great, great story or episode, whatever you would call it, called Tigger Loses His Bounce. You remember this one? Tigger Loses His Bounce. And I don't know how this came to my mind for an illustration, but it came to me last night. I haven't watched Winnie the Pooh in decades. And... Uh, but I thought of this illustration and how sad, how mortifying that Tigger would lose his bounce. How many of you would have watched Winnie the Pooh if Tigger wasn't even there? Tigger made the story. You can only watch a bear eat honey and talk in a sanguine voice for so long. It gets boring. So in this story, Tigger's irritating Rabbit to death. And so Rabbit gets this plot for all of 
the Hundred Acre Forest or Dumbledore's Castle or whatever it is to, yeah, I'm mixing my stories. Rivendell, I don't know what. Orcs and Gorks and whatever. But he comes up with this plan for everybody to take Tigger into the forest and they're going to lose him to teach him a lesson. And who gets lost? They all get lost. And mainly, Rabbit is the last one to be found. And who finds him? Tigger finds him. Eventually, two things happen to make Tigger lose his bounds. Does anybody remember the first? He's got Rue with him, and he's bouncing, and he bounces so high, he lands in the top of a tree. And he's looking over the whole 100-acre forest, and he gets scared. And so fear starts to erode at his ability to bounce. And so very creatively, um, they actually make it so the narrator turns the book so he falls out of the tree onto the next page. And, uh, and then he falls into the snow when the narrator turns it back and, and he's better. But then while he's up in that tree, he says, if, if you just get me out of this tree, I'll never bounce again. And so he ends up out of the tree and he's so overjoyed and he starts to bounce and rabbit goes, up, 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 up. You promised never to bounce again. And the rest of the story is so sad. Tigger's walking around like this. Tigger's just walking. He's now Eeyore's bunkmate. He's got the upper. It's weird saying the word upper with Eeyore. It doesn't work. And so it it just changes the whole demeanor of the Hundred Acre Forest. Tigger lost his bounce. This morning, I think some of us may have lost our bounce. The disciples were about to lose their bounce. Let's look at the Scripture today. We're going to break it down starting verses 16 to 19. Are you ready? A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. It was very confusing. There's a lot of little whiles in there. There's a lot of seeing, not seeing. There's a lot of secret talking. There's Jesus knowing what's going on. So let's make some sense of it, shall we? Here we go. Whoops, I have it up there already. Number one, Jesus gives us a forecast. He gives us a forecast. Let's go back into the history of what we're looking at. Jesus is about to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. Some would say, some scholars would say, they're already there. This discourse of what we've been studying from 15, actually 14, 15, 16, and what you'll hear in 17, that this is all taking place in one moment, more than likely. And what he's doing is he's just exited out of the process of examining the Passover, instituted uh, the, the Lord's table, the new covenant, And he's helping his disciples prepare for what they are about to experience. And he keeps saying to them over and over and over, I'm going to have to leave you. Do not panic. Because I'm coming back. And they don't get it. They don't get it. They're confused. And now they're scared. Now fear has entered into the picture. And Jesus, in his compassion, is reaching out to those who he loves. Remember a few weeks ago, this is where we hear him call the disciple his friend. That if you're going to serve alongside me, there's no longer this uh, master-servant lack of equivocation, this separation. You are now with me. And this is where he starts to speak about abiding and remaining in him. This is the history of what we're looking at this morning. And we're getting towards the tail end of the, the dialogue. He is about to monologue with his father in the high priestly prayer, but he is still in this this set of of dialoguing and preparing and reaching out to the disciples secondly the future he's saying that the future is unstable how many of us have ever experienced this i'm looking around the room and and as i look at you i've had conversations with you with you with you with you with and i can just keep going 
about times where your future was unstable. And it scared you. And there was fear. And the beauty of what I want you to understand here is that Jesus gets it. He understands. When you are about to enter into a testing time, into a scary time, and He is going to supply. He's going to equip you for that time. This is exactly what He's doing to His friends. He's saying, for a little while, I'm going to be gone. He, and, and then He gets into the sorrow and the joy. And we'll look at that in a minute. Thirdly, we see encouragement. What kind of encouragement? Did you notice it? This is fascinating. This is one of my favorite parts of our passage this morning. Did you see it? Verse 18. They're having a little sidebar conversation. It's kind of like Christians when they have prayer meetings. It's hilarious. It'd be nice if we invited Jesus once in a while. Because we'll sit around and we'll discuss, just like these disciples were discussing. What's going to happen? What's he, what's he talking about? And we'll discuss Scripture and we'll discuss this. And then we get to the end and we've got five minutes left to pray. Oh, Jesus, amen. Yes, we're gone. We did a great job. We forgot to pray. We forgot to ask. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus knows what they're discussing. Jesus knows that they're confused. Jesus knows that they want to ask. But have you ever been in that position... Maybe you were in, in a, a local JUCO, um, junior college, right? And you just didn't understand what the, just the syllabus. You know, what exactly are you asking for? And you're like, I need to, oh, nobody else is asking this question. If I raise my hand and ask this question, he could like, you know, this could go bad. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way with a boss? Have you ever felt that way with your loved ones? Ah, high school students, junior high students. Have you ever wanted to ask your parents for something, but you were too worried that if they said no, then it would be worse than if you just kept it to yourself? Yeah, I know what that's like. Here's the fascinating thing is Jesus knows that they want to ask. Jesus knows that you want to ask. And not only that, what does he say? Jesus shoots the elephant in the room. Now, he loves elephants, but he shoots this one. All right? He shoots the elephant in the room. How's he do it? Look at verse 18. What does he say? He just addresses it straight up. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? It's like Jesus isn't there. Hello, I'm right here. You could ask me. We do not know what he's talking about. By the way, this is a quote, so... It's not like they were thinking this privately. They're talking. They're having this conversation with him right there. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, sorry, verse 19, is this what you're asking yourselves? See, he's engaging. He's engaging the real issue, the challenge. And he wants to do that with you. He's constantly listening to your heart. He's constantly seeking, what is it that you're fearing? What is it that you need equipped for? What is it that you're searching out? Just ask. Just ask. And we'll get to this a little bit later today. So this morning, we start with this concept in the first few verses that what? Jesus gives us a forecast. He will tell us what's going to happen. And he's already told us what is going to happen for our life. If we follow His promises, if we follow His principles, He's already told us that we have heaven waiting for us. He's already told us that we have the Spirit available to us. He's already told us that if we gather in unity and we love on one another, it will go well for us over and over and over. I don't have enough time to speak of all those things. But we know the hope that awaits for us because Jesus stated it. He's given us a forecast. Secondly, This morning as we go forward, Jesus gives us freedom. Verses 20 through 22. And this is the meat of where we need to be this morning. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, 
No one, no one will take your joy from you. That was a life-changing verse for me, and, and we'll get to that in a little while. Jesus gives us freedom from sorrow. Ultimately, when we are in heaven, there will be no more tears. And not because Eric Clapton said so. All right? Scripture, Revelation speaks to this. Revelation 20 speaks to this. There will be no more sorrow because there's no reason for sorrow. But the reality for you and I and for the disciples is sorrow is a very real thing all around us in our lives, isn't it? And that is not because God instituted sin, which stems to sorrow. It is because man and Satan instituted sin. Even Jesus exhibited sorrow, didn't he? This is fascinating because how do you escape? It says there will be sorrow. How do you escape from the sorrow? Well, you've got to start with the reality that there will be sorrow. Now, if your cousin was killed on your behalf, would you be sorrowful? Isn't it interesting that when the message is brought to Christ, when we look at it, that his cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded, there is nothing in the narrative. That doesn't mean he wasn't. There's just nothing recorded in the narrative about any sorrow, any reaction of sorrow about his own cousin who was his marketing campaign manager. And a great one had been martyred for that cause. So does that mean Jesus is brutal? No, it means we have to look deeper. It means the reality is there will be sorrow. We need to go no further than just some, some text that we had just recently been in. I think it's John 12. My memory is horrible, but the story of Lazarus. Don't, don't turn there. But the story of Lazarus. And when the, when the sister comes to me, Jesus, and says, Had you just been there? My brother would be alive. A great statement of faith. And when Jesus sees all the weeping and all the sorrow, this is the prolific passage that everybody loves to say is the shortest scripture in the entire New Testament. Jesus wept. He also wept when he sat on the Mount of Olives. Coming up, we'll see this when he looked over Jerusalem. He wept over the people that would reject him. That would deny joy. That would deny faith that would deny the precious gift given to them jesus understands sorrow the writer of hebrews says that we have one who intercedes on our behalf because he understands us he came down he was part of this he inserted himself so that as we reach out because y'all want to talk to somebody who doesn't get you right that's who you go to for a close counselor you like to go to a counselor who can relate to your issues right you understand that that is one of the reasons for the incarnation of Christ. is so that we can know. This is what the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says. So that you and I can have the faith and, and the connection with Christ knowing that He suffered sorrow. And yet He had victory over it. And He gave victory over it. I want to go to that counselor. I want to go to that counselor. Jesus gives us freedom. There will be sorrow. It's kind of like that movie statement. There will be blood, right? The elephant in the room is that we want to pretend that we live in a world where there is no sorrow. That if you're a Christian, there is no sorrow. If you're faithful in the Word, if you abide in Him, there is no sorrow. My friends, Jesus experienced sorrow because of a broken and sinful world. So the reality is you start there. There will be hard times. But what's the answer? The hope of Jesus Christ states that sorrow will be turned into joy. He says it himself. Again, he says that there will be sorrow. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament and the world will rejoice because they're so against you, they're going to be happy. <clears throat> excuse me. They're going to be happy about the very things that you're sorrowful about says you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. A promise from Jesus Christ. Mail it in. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. How does that work? Well, we have to understand the relationship. Indulge me, will you? The relationship between joy and sorrow. 
we see Jesus give a metaphor because he knows that this is a mind cramp. This is a cerebral cramp for the disciples and anybody who's going to listen to these words. How is our sorrow going to be turned to joy? How does this work? And by the way, it did, right? If we know the story, we see the rejoicing of the disciples. We see Christ come through. We see him engage them. And in their wonderment, they learn that Jesus follows through with his promises. But there's a unique relationship. And so Jesus talks about this this, uh, allegory of a woman giving birth. Now, ladies, if you have given birth, I'm sure there was a certain level of joy as the contraction started. But at some point, fear went higher than joy. And that's what Jesus is talking about. I need to think no, no further than the birth of my second child, Jericho. And as Janine is having contractions, she actually stood up on the hospital bed. We had to start like, like throwing holy water on her or something. I don't know what was going on. It was scary. We had to talk her down, get her strapped down. And, and she, was, she was yelling, give me the medication. Sorry, too late. You wanted, you wanted to go free? with this and and now you've got it you know a few hours later was a much different story and that's what jesus is saying that sorrow turns into joy what a perfect illustration jesus uses and so whatever that thing is that's causing you great sorrow today understand that that can be temporary that is a circumstance and in many of our lives we have to go through sorrow in order to experience joy don't we But a day is coming where that will no longer have to be the case. All we will experience is joy. Let's look at this relationship real quickly. I I, I put together some things that make us understand this relationship between joy and sorrow. Interestingly enough, they depend on each other. It's kind of like light and dark. You can't know what light is unless you're in a very, very dark place. Well, you could, but you can't really appreciate it as much. And so there's an interrelationship that happens between sorrow and joy because they're polar opposites. They define each other. To know sorrow is to know that much more what joy is because it's what you long for. And as you experience joy, you realize how much you never want to experience sorrow again. They kind of define each other. They're both necessary in our lives. Many of us will grow because of the joyful things that God gives us. But Scripture has proven to us that because of our stiff necks, there are times where God intercedes and God allows things to happen because we refuse to listen. We refuse to listen. And so we have to, like Jonah, we have to go through some pretty sorrowful moments so that we can experience joy. They're both necessary. They're both easily defeated. This morning as you're sitting there, have you been able to defeat sorrow easily? Some of you have. Some of you have some huge monster that's overwhelming you right now that's causing that sorrow, and you can't imagine how this statement works when it comes to easily defeating sorrow. Can I encourage you to think back to a time where sorrow was easily defeated? Easily defeated. I used to be terrified of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Terrified. And that was when I was 28. No, I'm just... When I was a younger kid, we went to Disneyland as a little kid, and, and I remember a few things, but then like around 8 or 9, and we're going to go on Pirates of the Caribbean, it's all dark, and I start seeing, you know, and I was just old enough to have seen a couple old pirate things, and, you know, Blackbeard, and I'm like, yeah! this blackbeard coming around like what's going to happen and i didn't remember anything about this ride i spent the entire ride with my head ducked down and, and you know wishing there was a paper bag for me to breathe into we get out and and my mom's all see wasn't that just great we're like no it wasn't you added to my sorrow mom but years later i go through it and i just laugh at myself i laugh at myself i've pulled pranks with people on on pirates of the caribbean I got kicked out of the Pirates of the Caribbean. I was having so much fun. You know, I always felt bad for that one guy. You know that one guy that's fishing on that dock on the left? He looks so alone. Yeah, that's right. I got out and fished with him. They're both easily defeated. What about your joy? Is your joy easily defeated? I hope not. 
If our joy is easily defeated, we're not remembering who's Lord of our life. Did you catch that? I can be challenged. I can have fear. I can have my bounce taken away. But it should only be temporary. But because of things that God has continually done for me, it takes an immense amount to really steal my joy. Now I can have these intermittent spurts of furiosity, if that's a word. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, when the car is not working, you get out, you step in a giant puddle, and then you get hit by a car, that's not a great day. But that doesn't affect my joy. It just affects my demeanor in, in that moment. Is your joy easily taken away? Then we've lost track of who's in charge and what's the future and the freedom that we've been given. They can define us, right? When I brought up the whole Winnie the Pooh gang, you guys could totally relate. You could totally relate. And you're, you're sitting there wondering, uh, I wish I was more like um, uh, Rue than Piglet. Well, some of you are Piglets, right? Little worriers. Oh my. Some of you think you're owls. Who do you want to be? But you know, sorrow and joy define us. And what is it that we are to be defined by as believers? Fruit. Fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. These are the things that Christ remaining in you define us. How would people say that you're defined? In our men's study this past week, we had that kind of that question is, you may think you understand yourself, but go ask your spouse or go ask a kid or go ask one of your parents. How would you describe me? Maybe that's a good exercise for each of us in light of this, this idea. How would you define me? Would you define me as a joyful person or would you define me as one who's wrapped up in sorrow? By the way, they're both necessary for healing. Ecclesiastes 3 speaks about there's a time for what? Time for everything, including weeping. In James 4, the writer of James says that we should become sorrowful. We should turn our joy into mourning as part of our repentance process. In other words, take it seriously. Mourn over your sin. But don't stay there for very long. But joy is necessary for healing as well. And many people who suffer from depression and suffer from just the inability to, to move forward, characteristically, most of them have zero joy. They long for it, but they end up in such a cavern that they can't find it. And that's what Jesus can do. That's what Jesus can provide. They're both spiritual in their essence, interestingly enough. These are not take a pill and call me in the morning. This is something that is a spiritual endeavor. They're both, uh, the, yeah, they're both dictated out of circumstances. Therefore, they're both subject to choice. Isn't that fascinating? Let me share with you, because the absolute truth of all this is that there may be a, a, a sense or understanding that... Um, Sorry, this rattling is driving me nuts. I'm going to fix that. It's taken away from my joy. For me personally, there was a time in my life where I had let my circumstances steal away my joy. And I was not a person that many people wanted to be around. Thank God my, my roommates and my friends didn't kick me out of the house. But I was not a person that you really wanted to be around. And it was all because of circumstances. And I couldn't get my mind out of it. I couldn't get my focus away from it. Until there was one point in time where I went to my first funeral. And it was a funeral for someone in my family. I'd never experienced somebody dying. And it was my grandmother. We flew back uh, to, the, to the Midwest, to Illinois. 
And uh, I just didn't know how to process all of it. And I wasn't particularly close with my grandparents. So that really didn't play into it. But um, it wasn't going well with my family. And it's the middle of winter. It was like February. And uh, I'd had it so much that I decided to go for a walk in Illinois in the middle of winter. So you get the point, right? And uh, there's just this huge dark cloud over me. And it didn't help that, you know, I was in Illinois in the middle of winter because it's kind of a dark cloud permanently there. And so I walked to the cemetery. I'm standing there in front of my grandmother's marker. It's the day after we buried her. And uh, I really didn't even know why I was there. But it's the only place I knew to walk to other than the donut shop. And that wasn't healthy. So I didn't go. So I'm standing there, maybe it was just the power of suggestion in movies, you want to have this contemplative time in front of a marker. But what, what dawned on me, there was a couple of things that changed my life in that moment. It was all given through the Holy Spirit. And this thought, I don't remember if I just taught on it, I don't remember if I just heard it, but this, this statement by Jesus where he says, no one will take your joy. And as I was standing there thinking about life and death, it suddenly dawned on me that I was letting somebody or a set of circumstances dictate my life. And I literally said, I'm throwing off, just like we heard out of Hebrews 12, verse 2. I'm throwing off that set of chains. Remember, Jesus gives freedom. I'm throwing off that set of chains. I choose no longer to participate in this And from this day forward, I refuse to let anybody take my joy. And I will stand before you and tell you, you have a. The only reason I'm standing here is because of that moment. I don't want to think about where I would be if that hadn't happened in that moment. And my life has been absolutely blessed. Have I had sorrowful times? Absolutely, because they're necessary, right? But they do not define me. The love of Christ defines me. The fruit of abiding in Christ defines me. And we're going to talk a little bit about how do you move through this? What do you do with it? How do you live within it? Jesus gives us freedom. Verses 20 through 22, we've already read it. Number one, joy is a choice when there is still hope. When you don't have hope, there's nothing to choose, folks. But we have hope. Jesus gives us hope, amen? What Scripture says is waiting for us I go to prepare a place for you. My Father's house. There are many mansions. There will be love. No more tears. No more sorrow. None of it. That gives me hope. But there's also a choice of a discipline on how to deal with sorrow. Philippians helps us understand this with rejoicing. Second Samuel, we're going to look at here in a minute about perspective. And thirdly, love. And how love works to transition us from sorrow into joy. Let's look first at rejoice, shall we? In this concept of freedom, we start with rejoice. Philippians 4, 6 says, and it starts with rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord often, right? Rejoice in the Lord occasionally. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Rejoice in the Lord when everything's going great. That's what it says, right? No, it says always. For how many of us would this be a discipline? We would have to make a choice to do this. Do you see it? This doesn't just, you don't flip the magical switch, the magical Jesus switch, the Holy Spirit switch, boom, and all of a sudden sorrow is completely gone for the rest of your life. You have to choose on a daily basis to abide in Him. And when you do, you are able to rejoice always. How do you do it? What are the particulars? Well, this is great because Paul gives them to us. He says, again, I say rejoice. By the way, he reemphasizes, and we know what we're supposed to do when we reemphasize, right? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord, In other words, let people understand what you're struggling with, what your thought process is, what's going on, right? The Lord is at hand. He's close to you. He's abiding. We know this based even out of last week's message where he says, I'm giving you a helper and he will be just like me, a paraclete. He will walk side by side just as I have walked side by side by you disciples. The Holy Spirit will now take that place, now take that role and he will be your helper and he will walk side by side with you. You are not alone. 
You are not alone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. How many of you got anxious this past week? Okay, I sinned. I sinned. I got anxious about you all showing up this morning. I sinned this morning already, but I confessed it, so I'm good. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Guard. This is practical stuff, folks. Millions of people worldwide go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist looking for systematic things. Just give me the checklist of what to do so I can feel better. Paul just gave it to you. And it works. It works. How do you rejoice? Follow that pattern. Follow that pattern. Secondly, let's deal with the elephant in the room. If we get freedom, joy is a choice when there is still hope. Well, let's talk about that in brutal perspective. Turn to 2 Samuel, if you want. I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. And this is a very honest, honest approach to Scripture in this question. Sometimes perspective is necessary. Have you ever talked with somebody who was locked into a, a, a toxic perspective? They couldn't see the good around them if it kicked them in the head. Have you ever been there? I've been there. Just get so frustrated at the circumstances of life that I can't see the good things all around me. I don't know that I could have reacted the way that David reacts here. Verse 15 through 23. I only have a portion of it up there right now. But I'm going to read 15 through 23. David stopped abiding in God. David got focused on himself and his own desires. David stopped focusing on where he was supposed to be. And his circumstances led him like Tigger, to be on top of a tree or on top of a house and created a scenario or a circumstance where he gave in to his sinful flesh. Do we end up there? I end up there all the time. And so he commits an egregious couple of sins, probably multiple sins. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, And he kills Bathsheba's husband. Imagine being that child. Imagine being that child and growing up with that lineage. You know, this is the part that we don't tell our young people enough. So young people, listen up. The church did a horrible job over decades, over centuries, maybe even millennia. When there would be a pregnancy that was not connected to marriage. There's no easy way to say that. Used to be, even going back 40 years, not even 40, 30, that the standard was to ship a pregnant girl off somewhere. That's how we dealt with it. The church has done a much better job of coming alongside somebody who's scared who's worried. By the way, I believe this is why we've finally found enough reason to justify abortion. It's because of how we treated people when they sinned. So you see how it just capitulates. So the church has done a much better job of coming around those that have confessed, want to get their life right with Christ, and they're forgiving and they're loving. That's touched our church. But here's what I fear. That our young people do not see the consequences. Regardless of the forgiveness, regardless of the grace instituted, that there's not an understanding of all the consequences. And you think about if this child that you're about to hear about had survived the consequences this child would have had to have lived with. And the scrutiny because of selfish acts of adults. Please, as the church is getting better, young people, 
to loving those who need to be loved and to helping people understand the magnitude and consequences of sin, repentance, moving forward, forgiveness. Never lose sight. Even though there is forgiveness, there are consequences. You've heard me stand on this platform and tell you very boldly how I feel about abortion. And recently, I scared some of you because I told you I'm pro-choice. Some of you have not heard that, so now you're really paying attention. Here's what I mean by pro-choice. You see, it's a choice. If you're going to choose to be intimate with somebody outside of marriage, then you choose to take responsibility for what happens. I'm very pro-choice. Very pro-choice. And the more we become a society that just eliminates consequences, the more we fall down a hole. Listen to the brutal reality of what happened in this story. Bathsheba gives birth to the child. The prophet Nathan prophesies over it and he says this, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Does this sound like sorrow? Sorrow born out of circumstance. Sorrow born out of sin. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth. Listen carefully. Remember the relationship between sorrow and joy. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him and ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? Again, there is no greater sorrow that I've ever heard from anybody other than to lose a child. And yet look at what David has just done. He says, can I bring him back? No. But listen to the joy. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, David had perspective. David knew what had happened. And the harsh reality of this, Scripture says that God afflicted that child. And it's those stories that make us, or the world, want to see God as this horrible monster. I think the reason that we do that, and the reason we struggle with sorrow so much, and we want to hold on to it, and sorrow leads to anger, begets anger, I think the big reason is, is the selfishness. Because maybe that child, that particular child with the scrutiny that would have to happen throughout their entire life because of the sin of the Father was better being in heaven with God. Now who mourns over it? Who carries the sorrow? Those who did the offense. When we lose somebody that goes to heaven, we're incredibly sorrowful. And sometimes we get angry at God. Do you think that that person is sorrowful? The person who's gone to heaven? Absolutely not. Oh, that I would have this attitude of David. By the way, there is a time to mourn. I'm not telling you that, boy, when, when, when that loved one passes away, just flip the switch like David did and move on. No. There's a balance to Scripture and what God says. There is a time for mourning. There's a time for mourning. Just go back to the death of Lazarus. Jesus understood 
But my friends, when it comes to freedom from sorrow, it can be had in the hope of Jesus Christ. It can be had in the hope of Jesus Christ, no matter how deep that sorrow runs. Jesus gives us freedom. Joy is a choice when there is still hope. Love is the last point. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8. Go ahead and turn. Actually, we've got it up on the screen. Let's just look there real briefly. It says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at the wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Folks, you want to have power over sorrow. Sorrow happens because of either circumstances or fear. First John speaks about the fact that love, perfect love, drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. Love is incredibly powerful when it comes to drawing out sorrow and beginning to rejoice. So number one, practice rejoicing. Number two, get some perspective about what the sorrow truly is and how much magnitude it should have in your life. Thirdly, start loving. Start loving others. The tragedy that happens for many of us is we're overwhelmed with sorrow and so those good things that are around us suffer because we've stopped giving love to those things that we still have. Turn the sorrow into rejoicing. Let's wrap up this morning with Jesus gives us favor. In the last part of our passage, He goes again to His statement that is so critical, so necessary, and where we're going to focus tonight, and where you heard this testimony by Nancy. He says this, In that day you will ask nothing of Me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until, not, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You know, this is really starting to get to me. He's said this four times now. What is it about this that we're not getting? What is it about this that the disciples aren't getting? What is it we're supposed to ask? You know what? I'm going to share that with you tonight. But there's a couple things I want to share with you right now. Number one, he knows that you want to ask. So how many of us struggle with this idea? Even though he's commanding us, telling us, ask, ask in my father's name. We just feel like it's just not worthy to ask God for this, or he hasn't answered my prayers this way, so I'm just giving up. Maybe he wouldn't think that I should be qualified to ask of something. Yet he hears the disciples in their lack of understanding when he said it over and over. And what's he say to them? Guys, just ask. Just ask. And in a few short sentences again, he gives them the promise once again. Ask anything in my Father's name and it will be given to you. There's some context that we need to wrap this up with. Number one, when it comes to sorrow turning to joy, if you desire that, if you want that, whatever the circumstance is, then the biggest challenge right now is for you to ask yourself, what do you need right now? What is it that you need right now? Joy is the result of hope. Jesus says that no one will be able to take their joy away from them on that day. He also says that they will not ask anything of Him on that day. Why? Why would they not ask? Why can their joy not be stolen? Because they won't need to ask. When you're with the bridegroom, you no longer have to ask for other things. It just happens. So eventually, the hope that we look forward to is when we're reunited with Christ, or united with Christ, when we are abiding with Him, He does all the work for us. He can eliminate the sorrow. He can take our mourning and turn it into gladness. This is the hope of heaven. This is why thinking of what He is preparing for us should bring great joy in the midst of sorrow. The end of this story is not a tragedy if you know Jesus. It is victory. But until then, we need to ask. Just ask and He'll give unto you. Never let anyone steal your joy because it's not necessary. Love conquers fear. It drives out fear. 
Are you afraid? Is that what your sorrow is built on? Then start loving. Start loving the people around you according to 1 Corinthians 13. And you will be able to conquer over that fear. Learn how to let go of whatever it is, whatever circumstance has held you so tightly. Let no one steal your joy. Is that really possible? I'm standing before you to tell you it is. It is. And then review over Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It's a great practical help on how to do all of this. Sorrow? Well, what happened to Tigger? Did he get his bounce back? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Because he eventually helped Rabbit. You see, rather than just live by a manipulation or a coercion and live with the sorrow, Tigger basically said, I can't, I can't take this anymore. And others helped him. Others interceded. And because of sorrow that was happening or difficulty that was happening for Rabbit, Rabbit learned the lesson. So instead of the circumstances of the world inflicting sorrow on Tigger or us, Tigger turned it around and changed Rabbit. And now Rabbit found the joy of bouncing. Folks, even those things that seek to destroy our life, you, through the power of Jesus Christ and abiding in Him, through joy, you can radically change all. Let's pray and ask the Lord to guide our time this morning. The men are going to prepare for the offering. And again, please, I encourage you, Find time. If you can't make it out tonight, if, if there really is just something that's going on, pray where you are. Pray uh, between 5.30 and 6.30 uh, over, over God's hand of ministry in our people and through this local body, through this local church. Pray that the Lord has spoken to you this morning and encouraged you. To know Christ is to know joy, and it is to rejoice. Let me pray. It is to Your glory, Father, that we seek to please You. It is for the purpose of fruit that we desire to remain in You. And that, Father, we would be characterized, number one, by You, but by others as well, as those who have great joy because we know where our hope lies. That we don't give in to the sorrow of the circumstances around us, But in the midst of great difficulty, we can turn around and we can experience worship. We can experience joy. Lord, take the principles that we brought out of Scripture and write them on the tablet of our heart this morning. As we give as an act of worship this morning, I pray, Lord God, that You use this offering, this gift back to You, a portion of what You've given to us. Use it. For your purposes, multiply it, minister with it, increase the kingdom with it to your joy, to your effective joy. Thank you, Lord, to your glory. Amen.